All right, Ezekiel chapter 44. And again, we are talking about the millennial temple. Uh, we've spent a lot of time reading through chapters 40 through 43. And now we're looking now at the last five chapters, 44 through 49. Okay, I'm gonna make sure I had the last five chapters. Let's, uh, let's begin reading because again, remember that this is a prophecy that is being given by vision to Ezekiel to give to the people uh, that are the exiles in Babylon. These are the, the children of Judah that are in Babylon after the destruction of the uh, Temple of Solomon or actually at that, yeah, the Temple of Solomon, the, the first temple, as it were. And uh, so we'll, we'll begin by just reading, and then I'll bring you all back up to date here in just a minute. It says in verse 1, Then he brought me back the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary, the he being, of course, uh, the messenger angel of the Lord, and quite possibly the Lord himself. And he brought me back the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary, which looketh toward the east. And it was shut. And then said the Lord unto me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter in by it. Because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered in by it, therefore it, should be, it shall be shut. It is for the prince... The prince, he shall sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate. Notice, not through the gate, but through the porch of that gate, and shall go out by the way of the same. So as we return, as we return now to the prophecy of Ezekiel, after a considerable hiatus, there are a few things that we need to review and a few things we need to remember. First of all, chapters 40 through 48 are not always easy to understand. I think I said that at the very beginning of those particular chapters. And there are quite a few differing views concerning this last section of the book of Ezekiel. We've talked about the fact that, is this going to be a literal temple or is it something that is just symbolic and uh, we've come to realize that everything that the scriptures speak of when it talks about things prophetic, when it talks about things in the future, is highly literal. So this, while it will not be, you know, on the earth, let's say, between now and the coming of Jesus, it is going to happen because, as I said, this is going to be the temple of Messiah. It is going to be the millennial temple that is going to be the place where Jesus will reign for a thousand years. All of that we've, we've covered in, in great detail. Now, one thing that we do know is that this portion of Scripture pertains to that time that I'm talking about that is yet to come, the millennial kingdom. Uh, the, the word millennium, of course, speaks of a thousand years. Therefore, it is the thousand-year reign of Christ from his throne and temple in Jerusalem. So... It's a future event. But whatever seems problematic for us in this last section of Ezekiel, if it seems to be a problem or a dilemma to understand, there are still some great lessons that we can learn. Consider what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 15, verse 4. 
when he said, for whatsoever things were written aforetime or before time were written for our learning. And he's speaking about the things that happen in what we know as the Old Testament. What things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So as we learn from the past, and this is the, this is the understanding of what Paul is saying to the, to the Romans and to us, as we learn from the past, as well as from the coming future, but we'll get to that in a moment. As we learn from the past, we are encouraged and motivated to endure and to be comforted in the present as we look ahead in hope to the glorious future. That is how we as Christians have to live our lives today. We learn from the past. We're to be encouraged and motivated to endure through the trials and the hardships of this life in the present and be comforted in the present as we're looking ahead with biblical hope to that glorious future, which is the promises that God has made of eternal life with him. Whether it be certainly in the millennial temple, which comes first, or the millennial reign of Christ, which is first for a thousand years, and then of course, uh, with the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and all where righteousness will dwell, which will be what we will know as heaven. So let me add, if I may, more of God's wisdom from, uh, for us from the Apostle Paul. If you will, go back to Romans chapter 5 for just a moment. We're, we're, getting, we're getting back to Ezekiel here in just a moment. But I just want to add a little bit more encouragement on this issue of hope. Because here again, we're looking at something that is yet to be done, is something that has not happened yet. But what we need to understand is that everything that has been predicted that has happened, has happened 100% the way God said it would. Everything that God has promised, everything that Jesus promised that would be fulfilled by our time has been fulfilled. Everything about Jesus in the Old Testament that was, being, that was pointed to his coming has been fulfilled. And whatever has to be fulfilled before Jesus comes again, those things are being fulfilled even now. So in Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, this is what Paul says. He says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that peace, let me, t let me just tell you right now, that peace goes a long way. The peace of God goes a long way in the hearts and in, in the minds of the believer. Because no matter what we go through, and no matter what we struggle in this life, we can have peace with God. The conflict that we had with God before is over. We have peace with God. He rules and reigns in our lives. He should. And when he's not ruling and reigning in our life, that's when we don't have peace. So it behooves us to, to have this peace with God by having that salvation assured in our hearts that Christ has indeed saved us through the work that he did on the cross for us. And we believe that and trust in it. He goes on and says, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, into this undeserved favor wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So tonight we sang, which is always an expression of, re of joy. It is, a it is a, an expression of rejoicing in the things of God, who he is, what he's done, what he's doing and what he's going to do. That's hope, rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, Paul goes on to say, but we glory in tribulations 
Also, that's the hard part for us. That's the hard part when we're dealing with things in our flesh. And I say that because when we deal with issues, we deal with them because we're in flesh, aren't we? I mean, if, if we weren't, I wouldn't be able to see you, but I see you and you see me. So we face tribulations, we face trials, we face testings. And yet, Paul says not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing, and here's the reason why, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Tribulation, in other words, produces patience. The things that we go through, those testings, or like being, being a piece of, of prepared metal or being prepared metal is going to be on an anvil that's getting itself beaten up there a little bit to be shaped and molded by the ironsmith. The tribulation produces patience and patience while you're going through that produces experience, which literally means, by the way, proven trustiness, proven character. It builds our character in Christ. And then that experience produces hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. So this is just an extra little encouragement to you that we as believers in Jesus Christ should have hope in everything that God has promised, because everything that God has done has come to pass. So we can hope knowing and being assured that God's promises will indeed be fulfilled. So getting back to our text then, a second thing to remember then is that, that there is a right way and a wrong way to approach and worship the Lord. Now simply the right way to approach God is through faith in the promises of God. We are to approach God through faith in the promises of God, which, include, uh, which included the coming of the promised Messiah and the great gift of the promised land. And by the way, when I talk about the promised land, I'm not just talking about the land of Canaan that becomes later the land of Israel. That's just a picture of a more desired country which is heaven, and that's the type, a symbol and a picture of heaven, which is the promised land. So we worship God rightly when we come in faith, trusting in all of the promises of God. Jesus also taught us that, that the right way to worship God is in spirit and in truth which is seeking him with sincere hearts and active, lively, and dynamic minds. Seeking him with a sincere heart and a, and a, and a mind that says, I want to do more than just believe, but I want to live this life out as a believer. So we worship God in spirit and in truth. In spirit, in that, in, that, in that realm that the Lord has given us where we can meet with him in truth, which he's given us in his word. But sadly, the people of Israel had not always approached and worshiped God the right way. 
There were times when they did. There were times when they did that out of fear. I mean, I mean, real fear. Uh, just read the, the 19th and 20th chapter of, of, uh, of, of Exodus, you know, when they, they're at the, the base of Mount Sinai and, and, and they, they, they know that God, that God is there and, and they're, they're, they're trembling because of the thunder and the lightning and, and all. And then they listen to God and then they worship God until when? But Moses went up the mountain to be with the Lord and to get the, the commandments from him. And the people were saying, hey, you know, Moses must be dead. He hadn't come back yet. So what did they do? So they started imagining what God would look like and they made a golden calf. And they began to worship that. that. So they didn't always approach and worship God the right way. Why? And the, and the and the answer is, they hadn't trusted. They hadn't trusted in the promises of God, but in their own good works. Eventually, they would get to a point where they were doing the, they were doing the rites and the ceremonies as if to say, as long as we do this, no matter what else we do. You know, they could go to the temple and do all of the rites and rituals and they'll do the offerings and, and whatnot. And then at night, they go up into the mountains and they, they go into the groves and they begin to worship other gods. That was the wrong way because God said, I'm, I'm the only God there is. I'm the one true God. I'm the only God that there is to be worshiped. You don't worship other gods. So they hadn't trusted in the promises of God. And many of them had even offered their worship, as I said, to false gods not, and not to the true and living God. So a third thing to remember then is that Ezekiel is now preaching to the exiles in Babylon. They're exiles because they were disobedient and they were rebellious and God brought judgment upon his own people. But that was after he warned them how many times? Too many times to, to number. We're warning them, return to me, come back to me. Repent of your sins. Repent of your rebelliousness. And I will... I will take you back. I'll take you back. I'll bless you. God wants to bless you. God wants to bless you. They had become deeply discouraged, the people in exile, the people who were by the shores of the river Euphrates. They had become deeply discouraged and distressed, gripped by a sense of sheer hopelessness. Think for a moment of a nation so thoroughly destroyed. Their cities, their homes, their businesses, their worship centers, their temple, their properties, not to mention many of their own family members killed during all of that siege by the Babylonians. The Babylonians are ruthless people. You get in their face, they kill you. That's what they did. But even if they were set free to return home, even if they were set free 
They believed in their minds that there was no reason to return. And what were they going to return to? All that was left was bare land and rubble. But the messages of these last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel were, were preached actually to lift the exiled people's spirits, to lift them up, to encourage them that God had not forgotten them. See, God hadn't forgotten them then, and God hasn't forgotten them now. Although there are people today who will tell you, well, yeah, they're forgotten. God has forsaken them, and he's given all of their blessings to the church. That's hogwash. And it's heretical, by the way. Because if God loves anyone, he loves his people. And by the way, how many times did he tell them that he loved them with an everlasting love and made everlasting covenants with them that although they try to break it, he will never break? So Ezekiel was to preach this message to lift their, their spirits, the promise of a new temple, the promise of a new worship. A new land someday in the future would have encouraged and renewed a great hope within them. That was the whole point that God said, tell them these things. Having now described the temple that the Lord showed him in a vision, Ezekiel tells his people how the Jews will worship in the end time of human history. I truly believe that there is a great significance in the restrictions that will govern worship in the temple. This, this is what we're going to look at in the, in the next few chapters. But, but I, I really believe there's this great significance in the restrictions that will govern worship in that temple that is to come. All to make absolutely sure that worshipers approach God in a true spirit of faith and humility and honor God by obeying his instructions. Because with so many approaches to worship in the church today that seek to humanize the Lord and, and focus more on, on, on our feelings than on God's holiness and righteousness and justice, I mean, it, it is highly important to keep ever before us how high our God is over and above all of his creation, yet never to separate his compassions for us. There's one particular verse, and I probably should have shared this later, but i got to share it now because it, it really affects all of us in this, in this sense. Isaiah 57, verse 15. I want you to notice these first couple of words that it says, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I'm glad it's in that uh, translation. I, I did a different one. For thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Notice that. High, lofty, above all, and whose name is holy. Notice what it says. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Isn't that a beautiful thought? God is so high. But, but see, he has to stay there, folks. 
because of who he is. But he comes with his compassions, with his love, with his mercy, with his grace, and he's met us in his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Think, just think about that. And what do we do? Oh, he loves us, and all we do is sing love songs like we did in the 60s, you know, boys and girls and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's good to say about the love of the Lord as long as we always remember who he is. Do you all understand that? Because Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I, I, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, right? It, it doesn't bring him down from there. It says, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. That's the train of the, the robe of his majesty, the, the robe of his glory. I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphim, the angels, and each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With twain, means two, he covered his face. And with twain, he covered his feet, and with twain, he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You know, there are a lot of attributes that, that are in Scripture about God. God is just, God is holy, God is true, God is righteous. God, just so many other things, you know, he's, 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 God is love. But only here, in all of Scripture, does it say holy, holy, holy. It doesn't say anywhere love, love, love. God is mercy, mercy, mercy. But here it says God is holy, holy, holy. The emphasis on the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. And then said I, this is what Isaiah said, and, and this was in vision because he saw this in a vision. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That is the worshipful heart that we cannot set aside when we worship the Lord, when we praise God. We have to keep that understanding that he is high and lifted up. He'll always be high and lifted up because the scripture says that God never changes. He is immutable, which means that he never changes. And neither does Jesus. As we know from the book of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Jesus is holy. And he's righteous, and he's just, and he's true because he is God in the flesh. What we can say without a doubt is that the new worship in the new temple 
will be acceptable to God for the Jews at long last will worship him in the right way. They will worship him there in that millennial temple in the right way, approaching the Lord. Now, how? Through faith in the true Messiah of Israel. Because the true Messiah of Israel is going to be sitting on the throne in the temple. And what is that going to show? It's going to show that it's Yeshua. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ. But first and foremost, the regulations which we will study in chapter 44 are those under which the priests of the Lord God of Israel will serve in his temple. And these are, these are very clear as we, when we get to them through these next few chapters. But first comes a restriction governing the east gate and the introduction of a prince. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Let's go back and look at our text now. It says, And he brought me back the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary, which looketh toward the east. But notice it's the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary. The outward sanctuary, not the gate of the wall. I'm, I'm just emphasizing this, okay? Understand what the Word of God says by just reading it. <laughs> the gate of the outward sanctuary, which looketh toward the east. And it was shut. It was shut. And then said the Lord unto me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter in by it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered in by it, therefore it shall be shut. Now, if I hadn't emphasized the fact that that's the outer sanctuary gate, or the outward sanctuary gate, what would have been the first thought? Well, if you've been to Israel and you look at what is called the eastern gate, then all of a sudden you, you see this gate that's shut. Uh, all the other gates, there are eight, eight gates in the, in, the, in the old city of Israel, uh, I mean of, Jer of Jerusalem. And, uh, and so there, there's this, uh, uh, this one gate, right? It's called the Eastern Gate. Some call it the Golden Gate, the Gate of Mercy, as some call it in Hebrew. And the uh, Muslims have another name because they were the ones who we shut it up in the first place. I'll talk about that in a minute. But I'm sure you've seen pictures. I don't know, if there, is there a picture of that? Let me see. There you go. There it is. It's probably clearer on the sides. Uh, you'll notice it's, 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 it's pretty much bricked in. And I understand that it's about, I, I'm thinking about nine feet thick in, or maybe a little bit thicker. So it's not just bricks on the out right there in the front. I mean, it goes in really deep. All right. So we, we look at that and we think, well, there there is uh, you know that's that's why it's shut. But that's not it, because this is the outer gate, and I'll talk about why this isn't it. All right. So let's let's go look at it no more. <laughs> Maybe we'll come back in a minute to look at it. All right. So the outer east gate was one of the first features mentioned concerning the temple in Ezekiel's vision. This is the outer east gate. Ezekiel 40, verse 6, tells us, Then came he unto the gate which looketh toward the east, and went up the stairs thereof, and measured the threshold of the gate, which was run, one, reed, uh, one reed broad, which is ten and a half feet, by the way, remember the reed, ten and a half feet, 
and the other threshold of the gate, which was one reed broad. So this measurement will be important in just a moment. The fact from the text is that this outer east gate was to remain closed permanently. The fact from the text is that this outer east gate is to remain closed permanently, outward of the sanctuary. The reason for this is due to the reverence to be shown for the gate's special sanctity. It was the gate through which the Lord entered into the millennial area in his glory. It was the gate through which the Lord entered. Remember now that in chapter 10, Ezekiel saw the Lord depart from the temple. And now he's seeing the Lord return and enter into the temple. And so if you go back over, let's say, to uh, Ezekiel 43, verses 1 through 4. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looketh toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city, <clears throat> and the visions were like the vision that I saw by the river Kabar. And I fell upon my face. Kabar, of course, is in Babylon. Remember that he was transported again to Jerusalem. So he says that in the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate whose prospect is toward the east. That gate would be shut now. And it's to let us know something. When that gate is shut, that means the glory of the Lord will never depart from it again. That's the whole purpose of that gate being shut. Because the Lord is back, and, and in perfect English, he ain't going nowhere. He's there. He's going to be there. So for all intents and purposes, it has to be mentioned that as much as we'd like for this gate to be the golden gate, the eastern gate on the wall of the old city of Jerusalem that you just, just saw a little while ago, the gate that is now sealed, it is obvious from the dimensions, first of all, uh, given in chapter 40, that they are two entirely different gates. The, the gates don't measure the same at all. That being said, and just for your information, the walls that exist, the same picture you saw earlier, the walls that exist and are seen today were actually built by the Ottoman Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent in 1542. He closed the gate, as some believe, for purely defensive reasons. And yet Jewish tradition considered it the gate through which the Messiah, the Anointed One, will enter into Jerusalem. They still hold to that today. Muslims also, uh, I don't know if you saw it, but Muslims also placed a graveyard in front of the Eastern Gate to prevent the priests, who are the Kohens, the Kohens uh, to prevent the priests from entering in when Messiah comes. Because the, the Lord is going to enter in with the priests of Israel. But then again, into that gate? No. And, not, and, and, and let's remember two things, by the way. 
The structures of the current temple area or the temple mount will not exist in the millennial period. We've already talked about that. Jesus is going to change the whole topography of that, of that hill. The whole topography of Mount Zion is going to change. And secondly, don't forget the alternate location for the temple that we talked about the last few weeks, dealing with uh, the city of David, and quite possibly that being part of this whole new plan on which the uh, temple of Jesus is going to stand, which is the millennial temple. So that may or may not make a difference when Messiah comes and changes the topography of the land and builds his temple, but it'll certainly change everything. So with that in mind, we're now told that only a prince will be permitted to enter this gate. So let's look at verse 3 of Ezekiel 44. It says, it is for the prince. The prince, he shall sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate and shall go out by the way of the same. So the next dilemma that we have to deal with is, is this identity of this prince. Because what's the first thought in mind? A prince has come. Who is it? It's got to be Jesus. Okay, stop and think. That's the immediate thought. Now, he is obviously, Jesus is obviously called a prince in Isaiah chapter 9, isn't he? Verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But when you look at the Hebrew, the word prince here in Isaiah 9, verse 6 is the word sar, S-A-R. Sar. The term Sar, let's say we put it together with the word or the name El being God's name. Sar El. Bless you. Sar El. It, that word means prince appointed by God. Now, those of you who travel with us to Israel from time to time, we have a, 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 a tour company that's named Sarel Tours. And so, but that, they named it on purpose. They're, they're messianic themselves. They, they love the Lord Jesus. And uh, so they're, they're Sarel Tours. And it's, you know, prince appointed by God. The name Israel is not far from that because it uses, incorporates the very same root word for Sar in Israel. And the name Israel itself means prince with God prince with God, and it connotes, it connotes royalty. It is a connotation, which is what I meant to say, but both words are right. It is a connotation to royalty. And of course, the two terms are related, Sarel and Israel. But in Ezekiel 44, the English word prince here, and I'll read it again. It is for the prince, the prince he shall sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. The, word, the English word prince <clears throat> here is actually the Hebrew word nasi, N-A-S-I, with the emphasis on the I, nasi. 
It's a different word. It is translated as prince, but it could also be captain, chief, and a few other words, uh, literally more uh, leader than anything else. Now, Jesus is a leader, isn't he? He's certainly the, the captain of our souls, and he's the captain and anchor of our souls and all. But, but here is a, is a certain person named Nasi, or prince, and it's translated as leader, some kind of a leader. This particular leader is not the Messiah. And here's the reason why. We're going to follow through this so you'll know. Primarily because this leader will make a sin offering for himself. Look, go, go to chapter 45, the next chapter over. <clears throat> Notice in Ezekiel 45, verse 22. And upon that day shall the prince, Nasi, prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bullock for a sin offering. For himself, notice, and for all the people. What does that tell you? I mean, this would not be possible for Jesus, right? It couldn't be possible for Jesus because Jesus doesn't need any cleansing. And besides, such a thing is not possible for Jesus because the word of God says in Hebrews 4 verse 15, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings or the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Jesus came without sin. The Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world cannot have sin himself. But this particular prince prepares for himself and for all the people of the land a bullock for a sin offering. Now we'll talk more about it when we get to chapter 45. But in addition, this leader will also have natural children, which is not possible for the Messiah, unless you believe the Da Vinci Code. And I hope you don't, because that's a bunch of hogwash. But Ezekiel 46, go to the next chapter. Ezekiel 46, verse 16 says, Thus saith the Lord God, If the prince, Nasi, give a gift unto any of his sons, and this is dealing with natural sons, the inheritance thereof shall be his sons. It shall be their possession by inheritance. So, let me just check something here. What is, uh, what, what did I say, 46, right? <laughs> there 46, okay, there we go. And verse 16. Did I say Isaiah or Ezekiel? I'm sorry, Ezekiel. See, all this technology misses me all up. Let's go through this again. 46, okay. There we go. And 16. Now see. See, I'm just double-checking all my sources. I, I, I checked them three times already, but I figure a fourth wouldn't be bad. Now see. Not Sar. Big difference. 
So thus saith the Lord God, if the prince give a gift unto any of his sons, the inheritance thereof shall be of his sons. It shall be their possession by inheritance. That's not the Messiah. So now, there are those who believe that this prince is actually David. And there's some possibility that it could be David. If you read Ezekiel 34, verses 23 and 24, listen to what it says. <clears throat> and I will set up one shepherd over them. Now, we all know that David was a shepherd, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I just get distracted when people get up and leave. So, anyway, we all know that David was a shepherd, right? Yeah, well, and he shall feed them, even, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken it. But we've determined, and, and, and back when we were looking at chapter 34, and as we'll see also in, in 37, that these were actually references to Jesus, who is of the line of David. And so we made those arguments then. And then the same with Ezekiel 37, verses 24 and 25, that says, And David, my servant, shall be king over them. See, so it's not going to be David who's going to be the king. We know who the king is. Who's the king? Yeshua. Yeshua is going to be the king. King of kings and lord of lords. That, that's a, a clear reference then to Jesus of the line of David. So David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. And that brings back chapter 34 about the shepherd. And again, that's Jesus, because what did Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them, and they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. David, as far as Jesus of the line of David, and pretty much I know that's the word sar. But these passages have been shown to apply to the Messiah, as I said, and not to David. So this prince is more than likely an overseer of Jerusalem during the millennial kingdom who is not Jesus, but serves under Jesus' authority. He may very well be of the line of David, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, bet against that. <laughs> he is of the line of David, I'm sure. And don't forget that we're getting closer and closer to the, to the Jews determining their tribes again and from which tribe they all would come. And the technology of DNA uh, uh, research has, has brought us to that point where we can find out these things. And so that's going to be one major importance to the end times because the 144,000 mentioned in chapter 7 and 11 of the book of Revelation speak of these uh, 12,000 of each tribe. They have to know what tribe they're in. So that's an important aspect of, of, uh, of this particular prince who is some overseer that, that the Lord will use. And we're going to hear about him more, as we already noticed in chapter 45 and chapter 46. But what we do know from what we read here earlier in verse 3 is that he eats bread within the entryway of the gate, inside the court, and thus he's going to enjoy a special place of communion and fellowship with God. And that's pretty important, and that's pretty special. 
And don't forget that we've mentioned Zadok the priest. We're going to meet Zadok again later on in our study. We'll get, we'll get to him later. Let's look at verses 4 through 48 now of Ezekiel 44 and bring this part of our study to a close. We're only going to look at verse 4, but we're, study verse 4, but we're going to read down to verse 8. It says, Then brought he me the way of the north gate before the house. And I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And I fell upon my face. And the Lord said unto me, Son of man, mark well, take note well, and behold with thine eyes, and hear with thine ears all that I say unto thee, concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord and all the laws thereof. And mark well the entering in of the house with every going forth of the sanctuary. And thou shalt say to the rebellious, even to the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, O ye house of Israel, let it suffice you of all your abominations, in that you have brought into my sanctuary strangers, uncircumcised in heart, and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary, to pollute it, even my house, when you offer my bread, the fat of, and the blood, and they have broken my covenant because of all of your abominations. And you have not kept the charge of my holy things, but you have set keepers of my charge in my sanctuary for yourselves. Now, this is, this is many varied. This picture is many varied because, you see, just by the fact that they rebelled against God and they disobeyed the Lord and disobeyed the ordinances of the temple and of worship, well, that in itself would bring judgment upon them. But in, in that particular case then, what they did brought the Lord to bring the Babylonians, actually the Assyrians in the north, to come down to the, to the northern kingdom. The, the Babylonians come all the way down into the south and the southern kingdom and actually lay siege upon Jerusalem and the, and, and the temple and destroy it all. Well, they were the ones that desecrated everything. They were the ones that came in and they took over because of their disobedience. But it was also other things. Go back early on in, 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 in the vision of, of, of Ezekiel, of, of the inside of the temple. And, you know, uh, he was taken in, you know, the, uh, the torn a wall down and, and entered in and saw the very inside of all the blasphemies that they were doing inside their own temple. False worship. Um, going through all kinds of rituals, uh, mostly sexual, as it were. All of these things in the temple. But on the outside, you know, keeping that, uh, you know, that, that view that, well, you come, you do your offerings, and if you do it, then, you know, you've done a good thing, and you go on. But God said, I see inside. I see all the way down to the heart of these people. So we'll get, we'll get to that a little bit more. I want to go more in detail next time. But the emphasis in this vision has been on God's glory and the resulting holiness that was and is required in all aspects of millennial worship. But may I say to you that it is not that different how we are to worship the Lord today. We are to worship him in spirit and in truth. 
We are to worship him in his right character. Worship him for his right character. Worship him for his holiness. Worship him in his holiness. Worship him because of his holiness. Offer thanksgiving to the Lord for his mercies, for his grace. Ezekiel was brought once again, you see, to see the Lord's glory filling the temple. And what was his immediate response? It was reverence. It was awe as he fell prostrate in worship, which means he fell to his face, laid out completely, almost as if dead, but laid out in worship before God. And the Lord undeniably used this experience to impress again on the prophet the importance of holiness, the importance of holiness, because holiness must characterize the priests and their actions. That's where we're going in the next section of this chapter. When a person has a genuine encounter with a true and living God, and if you listen to anything, please listen to this. When a person has a genuine encounter with a true and living God, worship should always be the result. Why is it that many people today don't enjoy and appreciate worship, true worship? I didn't say, you know, I don't so many people enjoy the singing or the praise and, you know, the entertainment as it were in some places. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about worship, giving God his worth. Well, how worthy is God of our praise? How worthy is it? Why is it that many people today don't enjoy and appreciate true worship? Could it be because they haven't had a rich, real, and deep encounter with God? I really want to come back to this in just a moment. But Ezekiel was, to remind, Ezekiel was to remind his people where they had been. He needed to remind them where they had been, living in rebellion against their Lord and their God. He was to warn them of not traveling down that road again. Don't go down that way anymore. We've been called to do the same. We're to warn people of the rebellious path they may be traveling on and exhort them to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. I know you'll hear things like, you know, who, are, who made you the Holy Spirit? <laughs> I've heard that before. Well, nobody made me the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit told me to tell you, it's time to get yourself focused on the Lord again. Sadly, we don't appreciate what we have until it is taken away. Can you imagine having been in Judah or in Israel when everything that they had was taken away? How close can we as a nation come to that? We sometimes don't think about it in, in nationalistic terms, you know. But maybe we ought to because Israel went through it. The saving grace in all of this is that they became a nation again because God 
brought him back into the land. And no other nation has experienced what Israel has. That's another reason why we need to take Israel seriously. The Israel that is in the land today. But getting back to this issue of worship, the life that the Lord has called us to and the life to which we are to call others is not one that should be taken lightly. It should never be taken lightly. Jesus died for us. He shed his blood. And as far as I can see from the scriptures, when he shed his blood, he shed his blood completely. Can you imagine being drained completely of your blood? He shed his blood as the Lamb of God, the one pure sacrifice for the forgiveness and remission of our sins. And he rose again on the third day. He rose from the dead on the third day, conquering sin and death for all who believe in him and receive him and call upon his name. You know, it is not too late yet to come to Jesus Christ for eternal salvation. It's not too late. But there'll be a day when there is no more hope. There will be that day. In fact, we're told in the book of Jeremiah, the summer has ended. The harvest has ended. And we're not saved. That can happen. The day's coming. Today, there's still opportunity. There's still hope to come to Christ. But think about the words in Jeremiah 29, verses 11 through 13. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, and not of evil, to give you an expected end, to give you a future and a hope. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I, I don't say this to judge anyone. But I think I've seen too many half-hearted Christians. What God wants is a whole heart. Our whole heart. Our whole life. This is why in Jeremiah 33, verse 3, it says, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Call unto me, and I will answer. That applies to any of us here that may not know the Lord or may not feel that there's a connection yet. But maybe it's because you haven't called. In John 1, verse 12, it says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. He gives the power to become the children of God to those who believe on his name, the name of Yeshua, the name that means God is salvation. And so lastly, in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, this is Jesus calling out to us. 
I know many of us have already answered this call. But he says, still to this day, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think when we begin to do these things, and when we begin to take these things seriously, that we come to a better understanding of what right worship is like, what right worship is all about. And yes, there's things that we have to understand when we sing certain songs that words have to be right <laughs> because they need to be biblical and they need to express the true character of the God that we serve and love and that we worship. Those are important things. But more than that comes the heart of the worshiper. We're not to be influenced by the outer trappings of worship. We need to be influenced by the presence of Almighty God and the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through His Holy Spirit. And it's there that we worship God. It's there that we appreciate and enjoy His presence with us. It's there that we can lay all of our burdens down and let Him live in us. Let Him change us day by day. Let Him cleanse our hearts day by day. It's there that we can lift up our heads and look up knowing that our redemption draws near. Knowing that this world is not going to keep us here. There's nothing, you know, I mean, as long as we're here, praise the Lord. We, day by day, we live our lives. We do the things that we do as long as we do them according as unto the Lord and not unto men. But you know what? There'll be a day when he comes. And I'll, I'll tell you this. I'm not going to sit here thinking, world, the Lord, the world, the Lord. Uh, well, okay, Lord, let's go. It's not going to be that way. Lord Jesus, come quickly. If we're still here, we do what we need to do. But when he comes, whew, vamonos, let's go. Let's go home. Because everything after that from the scriptures is going to be dark. Dark. The, the day of the Lord is dark. And Jesus said, I'm coming. I'm taking you out. Getting you out of here. Be ready for it because it can happen any moment.